You can turn to John 16, and we'll be uh, in verse 5 through the end of the chapter. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we glorify you this morning as we open up your word, and our hope and our prayer, of course, is that you would use this study to sharpen us, to mold us into your image, and to equip us for the task of worldwide conquest. This task we admit and acknowledge, readily acknowledge that it's a big one, which is why we need your help, and we're asking for your help. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. So John 16, and we'll just kind of pick our way through it and then go from there, calling this message Truth and Conquest, as it'll, you'll see as we go. Remember, the disciples are with Jesus. Jesus is teaching them. Uh, he's giving his final instructions to them. This is very Trinitarian. So when we go to the want to defend the doctrine of the Trinity against um, cultists that were downtown Friday, it's good to have a healthy understanding from Scripture of the Trinity. And Jesus is teaching them essentially the nature of what he's come to do, what he's going to do, and what they are going to do in light of that as well. And we'll, we'll um, unpack that as we go. But let's just read through it. I'm going to stop and pause periodically and, and just make some comments to give you some bearings on it. And then we'll go from there. Verse 5 of chapter 16. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Remember, there's confusion about Jesus has already said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you. This is not about heaven. This is the house that Jesus is building on earth with his people. So none of them are asking, where are you going? Though they have sort of danced around it before. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. There's uncertainty. They're, they're sorrowful. They're, they're not entirely sure what to think. Verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's already talked about the Advocate coming, and they need to know it's good that Jesus leaves. It's a good thing, contrary to human intuition. Verse 8, and he, the spirit advocate, when he comes, will convict, that word convict is a, um, it's a legal term, it's prosecuting, it's, it's actually um, shining the light of truth on something in order to bring and pass judgment. So that's that word. He's going to convict, it's a great word by the way, other translations use different ones, but convict is good. Um, he was going to convict the world concerning what sin and righteousness and judgment three things we'll get to concerning sin because they do not believe in me there's unbelief in the world the the spirit brings that out concerning righteousness because i go to the father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged jesus has already said the ruler of this world is cast out back in john 7 so he's bringing judgment on satan the satan the accuser I have many more things I say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, and for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. We just confessed in the Westminster Confession of Faith that the Father is not begotten, but the Son is begotten. Now, that is not eternal subordination. 
That is the nature of God. We have the Father and the Son, and proceeding from the Father and the Son is the Spirit. And so there's, you know, a lot of Trinitarian heresies dance around these issues. But the Spirit's going to only speak what the Father and Son tell Him to speak. Verse 16, A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Okay? A little while you will no longer see me. He's speaking of His death. Jesus is going to the cross to die. And again, a little while, and you will see me. There's the resurrection. They're not going to see him for a while, then they're going to see him. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They are confused. (laughs) So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. What is he talking about? Now, this isn't, you know, 2,000 years. A little while is like moments. He's about to be betrayed and arrested. There's debate on whether or not this is discussion is still happening in the upper room because at the end of chapter 14, um, he says, get up, let us go from here. So probably they're talking on the way there and probably in the garden before he's going to pray, you know, and, and um, wrestle with you will, if you will, with the cup the father's giving him. He's probably, you know, teaching them this stuff. So what is he talking about? (laughs) Verse uh, 19, Jesus knew that they had wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. What's coming will bring them to lamentation. But the world will rejoice You will grieve. Now, why would the world rejoice, by the way, and the disciples be sad? Because he's talking about the cross. The cross is going to see this as the great victory. We've killed God's son. This is fantastic news. So the world rejoices, but they're going to weep and lament. And they do, leading up to um, the resurrection. They're huddled up, unsure of what in the world's going on. Their Messiah is dead, and a dead Messiah is not really a great Messiah to follow. But you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Um, I've seen all three of my kids be born, and it's uh, quite a messy situation, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, Especially Eli, when you were born, I thought a bomb had gone off in the uh, delivery room. Um, but you're here, and you are a joy. Um, and I, Jesus, we'll come back to this, but a lot of language is used for childbirth. Um, birth pangs in Romans 8, the creation is groaning. Um, women in labor tend to groan. <laughs> Slightly, a little bit. So therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no and no one will take your joy away from you. We're talking about joy abiding in Christ. He's already talked about this um, from chapter 15. So in that day, you will not question me about anything. In that day, meaning when the resurrection happens, they're going to have a lot of answers to their questions. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Children, do you know why it's important after our prayers to say in Jesus' name? When we say in Jesus' name, we are 
petitioning God. We are giving our prayer to God and we are sealing it and signing it like you would a letter with the authority that comes with Jesus. So before they couldn't pray in Jesus' name because he's not yet crucified and risen and ascended as our mediator. But now we pray to him. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, the authority of the Son. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask my name, in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Verse 29. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come and you, uh, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Central to Christ's teaching in this passage is the relationship between truth and conquest. The truth about what he has come to do what Jesus has come to do, the truth about what is going to happen after he accomplishes what he has come to do. So in short, Jesus has come to establish, to be, as, be established as king and to send his people into the world to declare the truth that Jesus has been established as king. We are not preachers of the gospel trying to wish something were true. We are preachers preaching on the authority that something is already true. Jesus is king. So keep in mind what I argued a couple weeks ago. Jesus is Moses. Moses is going away. He's, Jesus is going to the cross. He's going not only to the cross, he's going to go right through the tomb, right on the other side in resurrection, and he's going back to the Father. So this leaving doesn't, however, make his people orf- orphans. We're not homeless. Jesus is building a house for us. And it's this world, it's this covenant people growing and expanding into the world. So after Moses came Joshua, and after Jesus comes the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says, it's better this way. Why is it better that Jesus leaves so the Spirit can come? Well, the reason is that's the only way the Spirit can come. But we shouldn't think that Jesus is completely absent from things happening on the earth. We tend to relegate heaven to up there, which geographically would be down there for the Chinese. So don't think of it in terms of spatial geography. The earth, the earth, you should know, has become the footstool of Jesus Christ. And a footstool is very close to you because it's as close to you as your feet are close to you. Jesus, he is present. He is active in the world of which he is king. And all of that is done through the means of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So it's not as though Jesus' departure can be quantified in terms of miles um, you know, like the, like the moon is 200,000 miles from Earth. I don't know how you calculate that. There's got to be some mathematic thing. But that's what they say. So it's not like that. <laughs> we won't get into um, landing on the moon. Um, maybe later. But, <laughs> but the physically raised Jesus. Jesus is raised physically. The physically raised Jesus. He's not present on Earth in the same manner 
um, when he was the first time he came. No, he is present in the world through, by virtue of the sending of his spirit, the Holy Spirit advocate. So the heavenly dimension is what we'll call it. We'll just call it a heavenly dimension. It's very much an overlap with earth. So kids, we want you to know that like we, when we say heaven up there, it's not necessarily just straight up in the sky, you know, toward the North Star or something like that. We, what we're saying is heaven is a spiritual dimension that overlaps with the earth. If I had a whiteboard, I would draw it. But you think of two concentric circles like this. They were one when God created Adam and Eve, but it was fractured. But Jesus is putting it back together. There's a new heavens and new earth, and that's not two different places. That's one place together. So, so don't think of it in terms of you know, quantifiable space, but rather think of it in terms of spiritual dimension. There are spiritual realities happening on this earth right now. We don't always see them, um, but we will see them. So that said, we need to see the sending of the Spirit and the church, the sending of the Spirit to this church, I should say, as being the very power and procedure needed to conquer the world. So don't underestimate what Jesus is saying in this whole you know, sermon. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The place is here. <laughs> I'm sending you the Spirit. That's here. We're not waiting to just go to heaven. We're waiting to transform the earth into heaven. That's the whole point of the gospel. So all of that requires us to have a healthy doctrine of the Holy Spirit, something we can only briefly touch on. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Far too often, Christians have what we can call a sentimentalized view of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, many Christians simply don't know what he does. Uh, we don't know what he does, and nor do people really know how he does it. This ignorance, I think, leads to a compartmentalization of the faith. But not only that, it's a weakening of the faith. We need a robust understanding of the Holy Spirit which is to say you need an understanding of the person who lives in you. <laughs> Otherwise, that's awkward. There's somebody inside of me and I don't know anything about him. If we don't have a healthy understanding of the Spirit's work in our lives and the lives of others, my, my contention is that we will atrophy, the church will atrophy, and then become irrelevant. And I would argue that's part and parcel to what we have going on today, is we do not trust the Holy Spirit. We don't know what He does. We're scared of Him. Sometimes we even blaspheme him by calling him an it. He is a person with a personality, a will, a volition, right? He lives in God's people. So here's what I mean with that. To, to sentimentalize the spirit, one must know that he exists in some fashion. We sort of vaguely know, right? But then we relegate his activity to the memory bank. We don't really think of him working in us day in, day in and day out. And I think this is, by and large, why we have rampant cessationism. And coupled with that is a mindset of defeat. Um, we are Holy Spirit people here. We probably, in many ways, are more at home with charismatics than the Reformed people. <laughs> and the reason is because while many charismatics have you know some wonky views of Scripture and some of them have a terrible view of of the Trinity, a heretical view, frankly. Um, still, we, we believe in the Spirit and we believe in His work in us. But <laughs> most, by and large, we just don't know what the Spirit does, which means that if basically we can't recognize what He's doing, and then we remain in the dark, we remain impotent, and we remain safe. 
And that's one thing the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do is be safe. But the Spirit is not interested in any of that. He's not interested in impotence. He's not interested in being safe. He's not interested in us retreating from the world. Retreating from the world is actually the opposite of what the Spirit has come to do. He's come to bring us and lead us into conquest like Joshua. So, do you have faith? The Spirit gave it to you. Do you have repentance in your life? The Spirit gave this to you. Do you have a burden for things of righteousness? The Spirit gave this to you. Do you have a desire for justice for your neighbor? The Spirit gave this to you. Do you have moments in life or times throughout the day where you do feel inclined to pray? The Holy Spirit gives this to you. Do you have fits of joy, delighting in your salvation, delighting in Christ, delighting in the gospel? Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit gave this to you. Do you long to see the world transformed? The Holy Spirit gave this to you too. So what did you have that you did not receive by the Holy Spirit? Nothing. Only your sin, which means that we must not spend our days forgetting that the Spirit of God lives in us, guiding us and directing us towards the end that is God's glory. So listen, wrestle with the Holy Spirit if you must, but do not sentimentalize Him. Do not fossilize Him. Do not stick him in the museum of your memory bank and forget about him and visit him from time to time when you remember, oh, that's right, I do believe in the Trinity and there is a Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Listen, the Spirit's responsibility and task is to take what Christ has established in the gospel and implement it throughout the world. That's one of his primary tasks. He's taking what Christ has done, what Christ has established, and he is implementing it through the work of the church, and, by the way, out of the church, as we'll see in a minute, and implementing it throughout the world. And I think that's clearly laid out in our text. The Spirit, he convicts the world. He moves from a witness to a prosecutor. The, we don't often think of the terms in terms of that. Usually the Spirit is just, you know, he works in us, and, and that's great. He helps me pray or, or things like that. He works out of us, too. He is a witness and a prosecutor. He's an advocate. He's a defense attorney for the throne room of God. And he works outside of the church in the world to do many things. He reveals the sin and guilt of the world, exposing it and judging it. He awakens even the consciousness of an unbeliever so that he knows that God exists and knows that he is guilty. Have you ever thought of that? Think of that with, you know, your street preaching or think of that in a conversation you have with a coworker. Think about this. God's word says in Romans 1 that um, unbelievers know that God exists and their problem is suppression, right? Why in the world do they know that God exists? I would argue two ways. One, they're made in his image, which means they have the imprint, the imprint of the spirit on them. They're alive. And the fact that they exist is by God's grace. And two, because the Holy Spirit works in unbelievers too. So he knows they exist and they know they're guilty. So Jesus says um, in our passage that the Spirit convicts the world of sin. That is, the Spirit addresses unbelief. Unbelief is the great sin. That's the great sin of, of, of unbelievers is unbelief. He also convicts the world of righteousness. That is, Jesus is raised. There is now a legal precedent for righteousness and justice in the world. Our standard is the crucified and risen Messiah. That's the standard for righteousness. 
That's the reason we can speak to immigration, gun control, politics, all these things. And third, Jesus tells us that the Spirit convicts the world of judgment. That is, Jesus sends his Spirit to bring legal charges against Satan, the ruler of evil, and he binds him up so that the new order of Christ's kingdom can be established. So we should take this passage to mean that the Holy Spirit strengthens and nurtures and works in our lives each day. And that he breaks the teeth of the wicked. He he strengthens you, encourages you. If only you would give him time. If only you would look to him. He takes us to the Father through the vehicle of the Son by way of the Spirit. But he also breaks the teeth of the wicked. See, the world can only revolt and rage against Christ. Um, That's all it can do. And it's funny, well, not funny, it's actually sad. But when we were packing up after the high school thing on um, Thursday, and um, we were down at the other end toward the middle school, and this woman, she had to have been a high, high school student, got out and was raging mad. Um, maybe even demon-possessed, I don't know, just flipped out. All because we had signs of aborted image bearers. And so I grabbed the mic and I just felt like God wanted me to preach to her. And so she um, heard the gospel and injustice. But I was just thinking in that moment, like that's all the world can do. I mean, the gospel is either going to break the pride and they're going to weep in repentance um, <laughs> or they're just going to suppress it and get raging furious. But the Spirit is our advocate. He's the world's prosecuting attorney. He strengthens, he supports the people of God, and also he weakens and undermines the enemies of God. So in true fashion, the Holy Spirit, he is our new Joshua, taking us, the church, into the world to conquer the new promised land. That is what this is talking about. So now the the arrival of Jesus on the scene in history means that the work of reclamation, of reclaiming the planet, is now underway. Jesus didn't die to punch your ticket. Children, listen to me real quick. Jesus did not die so that you could just go to heaven. Jesus died in order to establish his kingdom so that you could be partakers of it. You are members of his kingdom. This is a big thing, and it's huge. And your job is to figure out what God has gifted you to do so that you can listen to the Spirit, so that you can grow up and mature and grow into the person God wants you to be. Some of you need to be scientists. Some of you need to be polit- politicians. Um, some of you, you're going you're gonna to have kids and grandkids, and you're going to teach them the same stuff. And some of you guys, I'm guessing, are going to be plumbers. <laughs> All right, maybe even Jacqueline. <laughs> All right. Uh, The odds are pretty high. I'll just say that. Um, But your job is to know that and follow it. And your parents are going to teach you that and help you and guide you into those things. But Jesus didn't die just so you could go to heaven. He died so that his kingdom could be established. So in our text, he's going away, right? They're not going to see him, but he's going to come back in a little while in his resurrection. They are going to see him. But these events of Jesus' death and resurrection serve as the foundation for the giving of the Holy Spirit to God's people in order to win the nations. So they are foundational, 
But here's how they are foundational. They're foundational in the same way that Braxton Hicks are foundational to uh, letting you know that things are about to happen in a pregnancy. (laughs) Jesus, in verse 21, he uses that illustration of childbirth, um, which prophets would use that often to describe basically the victory that God brings out of defeat. Um, it's, it's all over the scriptures. So there's this battle going on, and the fact that there is a battle affirms the victory. Much like the agonizing pain of delivering a child awakens you to the reality that victory, you're on the precipice of victory, that child is going to be here, you can breathe and stop groaning. The child will appear. And that's the assurance that we have as we wage godly warfare in the world right now. The fact that things are completely disheveled and obtuse proves the victory. None of you should look at the newspapers and think, oh, things are getting bad. God's God's losing control. Satan must be winning. No, that is all evidence that Christ is winning. See, the Spirit is at work in His church and in the world And these sanctions of God, covenantal sanctions we call them, like the giving over of people to their lust and their desires, all of that comes from the hand of King Jesus through the vehicle of the Spirit. And all of it is unto victory. See, there's grief now, but Jesus says grief becomes joy. That's the foundational principle of the gospel message. The grief of Christ's death becomes the joy of his resurrection. The grief of... Trials and tribulations becomes the joy of victory. The grief of Christ's bloody cross becomes the dawn of a new age. And this is why I would, I would argue post-millennialism is the only true eschatology, the only true biblical eschatology, because you have a category for defeat flipped into victory. And remember, the other side of the cross is the empty tomb. That's the entire paradigm for history. You can't go back 500 years and say, oh, wow, that's glorious. Martin Luther, John Calvin, rah, rah, rah. Look where we're at now. But we're paving a way for another victory. And we have the spirit of truth that leads us into truth. We have the foundation. We have the morally upright epistemological self-consciousness <laughs> to press charges against the world through our prophetic denunciation and prophetic witness. And listen... The Bible is concerned with public history. Jesus was crucified out in the open. The gospel is not, kids know this, the gospel is not just a private thing we do on Sundays. The gospel is not some sort of secret knowledge kept hidden through the centuries. It's not to be reduced down to mere psychology and mythology, which is what the Western world wants you to do. The gospel deals with history out in the open, and thus we must do the same. And that's, I think, a failure of the modern church. We want to manage Christ. We want a manageable Christ whose kingdom demands very little of us. But the reality is we're at war. And oftentimes we're holding on, out on God to be who we wish him to be. That's the disciples, I think, for fear of um, maybe we'll be let down or because we want to insist on our own way, which is the opposite of love. But that's what the disciples struggled with, frankly. They They struggled with that aspect of it. They would abandon Christ. They would leave him alone. Um, the, they would scatter away. And Jesus says, but I have my Father. But if the truth is going to be upheld and conquest of the world is going to be had, we better believe that even the most darkest of times, the Lord of light is at work bringing Christ's Lordship to bear. Let's pray. 
Father, we know that, that the Holy Spirit is our Joshua leading us and guiding us unto victory. Um, we know that we can have peace. The world, there's tribulation, there's infanticide, there's statism, there's all of these things tangled up. But we do take courage, like Joshua told us to take courage, because Christ has overcome the world. And we know it's the Spirit's job to, to guide us down this missionary road of history, enabling us to see and engage in every single situation, whether it's unprecedented or not, so that we can declare that the victory belongs to God and His Christ. So we glorify you this day. Help us to remember that you lead us into truth. Help us to seek after the truth, much like we would water if we were thirsty. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.